It's now about 483 BCE. It's been 100 years since Jerusalem fell. The Babylonians have been conquered by the Persians. And it will be about another 150 years before the Persian Empire falls to Alexander the Great. It's been only 30 years since the temple was rebuilt in Jerusalem under the leadership of Joshua and Zerubbabel. Um, So we've skipped basically 30 years forward from where we were last week. King Darius the Great has died and his son Xerxes has been on the throne about three years. His name in Hebrew is Akash Farosh. Your Bible translation may show either name, uh, one or the other. It's the same guy either way. And he makes his capital in the great Persian city of Susa, which is east of Babylon. He immediately encounters revolts throughout his kingdom, including Egypt and Babylonia itself. And there are ongoing fights with the Greeks who are beginning to flex their military muscle. You remember the study guide a few weeks ago in class 73, where I introduced you to the religion in Persia at this time? We read about their belief in a merciful god, Ahura Mazda, who was opposed by an evil spirit, Angra and how they believed the good Ahura Mazda would not let the evil Angra have the last word. And so Ahura Mazda would send a messiah who would bring about the end of time, and all who were evil would undergo three days of refining fire, and then they and everyone else would be reunited and would dwell with Ahura Mazda forever. Everyone, that is, except Angra Mainya, who would be destroyed. Well, we have a historical inscription made by this very King Xerxes called the Old Persian Inscription, where he talks about the revolts in his kingdom and says, quote, among these countries, there was a place where previously false gods were worshipped. Afterwards, by the favor of Ahura Mazda, I destroyed the sanctuary of the false gods, where previously the false gods were worshipped. There I worshipped Ahura Mazda, end quote. I sourced that translation from the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible. So this is a king besieged by trouble everywhere and who links his success or failure to that of his god, Ahura Mazda. Given this context, I find it very interesting that Esther is one of the only two books in the Hebrew Bible where God is not mentioned at all. The other book is the Song of Solomon. And it makes me wonder if Yahweh is not mentioned in the book of Esther, because perhaps it was written by someone who was raised in the Persian religion. We always assume the book was written by a Jew because the Jews are certainly central and victorious. But it is interesting to reflect on other possibilities, especially since the Hebrew language used in the book is clumsy, according to Bible scholar Robert Alter. I wonder if Hebrew is a second language to the author. It is also the only book in the Hebrew Bible where not even a scrap was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, the only book, perhaps indicating that the Essenes at Qumran did not see this book as canon. Plus, the style of the book is quite different than most of the other books of the Hebrew Bible. Do you remember back in the book of Judges in class 27 when we read the story of Ehud and the evil king Eglon? We had fun with that story, cheering the larger-than-life hero and throwing popcorn at the comical evil king. Well, the story of Esther is that same sort of story. It is highly stylized, and the characters are either shining paragons of virtue or are easily manipulated pawns or are villainous men of power. In fact, This story reminds me very much of the classic Disney Disney princess stories where the story seems on the surface to be made for children with easy to follow characters, but there are constant double entendres, sexual innuendos, and complex cultural references for the adults. No wonder the story is a smash hit. 
And if that isn't enough to convince you, this is not a strictly literal historical version of events. The whole book is constructed as an elaborate chiasm. You remember that powerful tool in our toolbox. It's named after the Greek letter chi, which looks like an X. It's a popular technique used by ancient writers to draw the attention of the audience to the most important point in the story, that central crux where where the, the pieces merge. I put the details of the chiasm in your study guide for reference, and we'll definitely pay attention when the chiasm leads us to the central core message. The chiasm I lay out here is one of many chiasms you might notice in this book. Pretty much anyone familiar with this literary technique is alerted to its presence by the many repetitions in the story, the banquets, the honors, the assassination plots. You can hardly miss it. That said, not everyone will see the chiasms in the same way. Beth Moore, one of my sheroes, a woman of courage herself and an amazing Bible teacher, does a terrific class on Esther in which she points out a smaller, more general chiasm. And the NIV study Bible has a chart of a smaller chiasm embedded within the book of Esther. There are chiasms all over the place. For my part, when I encounter a passage or a book that is obviously constructed as a chiasm, I create a summary of the story in bullet point form. Then I begin matching up the most obvious bits and work my way back and forth, adjusting and revising until I finally have all the matching parts identified and I can see the middle of the chiasm. It is so much fun and is a joy to share with you. I'll note each part of the chiasm in a banner heading as we go along, so it won't interfere with my simple telling of the story. But there's no need to scribble the banner headings down, as I put them all in your study guide. The story opens with King Xerxes giving a banquet for all the leaders and officials and nobles from his entire kingdom, For six full months, King Xerxes displays all his lavish wealth and makes it clear to everyone what a splendiferous king he is. At the end of the six months, the king grows a grand finale banquet that lasts for seven days. He invites everyone from the entire city of Susa to this banquet. The wealth on display is staggering cloth of expensive indigo and scarlet, seats of gold and silver set on intricate mosaic floors of precious jewels. There's even an open bar where every goblet is a unique design made of gold. It's incredible. Of course, by the seventh day, everyone is roaringly drunk, and King Xerxes orders his eunuchs to fetch Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown so he can show her off to everyone. This is the ultimate objectification of a woman. She is nothing more than his prized possession. And Queen Vashti refuses to come. The danger to her in that room of drunken men must outweigh her fear of whatever punishment King Xerxes might choose to mete out. What courage she has. She refuses to be objectified. She claims her own agency, come what may. When the eunuchs return to report the queen's refusal, King Xerxes is enraged. He has been publicly humiliated by a woman. He consults with his advisors and asks, what can legally be done to the queen? They respond, that because of her conduct, all women will despise, disrespect, and disobey their husbands, and there will be no end of contempt and wrath. Typical patriarchy response when they feel their control over women slipping, right? Therefore, they say, the king should decree that Vashti may no longer enter his presence. She will be banished and deposed and someone else will take her place. 
This sounds like an excellent plan to the drunken king, and he issues a decree throughout his kingdom that all wives shall give honor to their husbands and every man shall rule over his household. <laughs> well, once King Vashti has been deposed, it becomes obvious fairly quickly that a new king, queen needs to be crowned. And apparently none of the wives and concubines on hand are up to snuff. The king's personal attendants suggest that the most beautiful virgins in the kingdom be rounded up, placed in the harem, and given beauty treatments under the supervision of Haggai the eunuch. The virgin who pleases the king most will be crowned queen. It is at this point that Mordecai is introduced. He is a tribe, um, he's, he is a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember that. It will become significant later in the story. Mordecai's family was exiled in 597 BCE, about eight years after Daniel was taken captive. Mordecai is, is the guardian of his orphaned cousin, Esther. And she is one of the most beautiful virgins who is rounded up. Before she leaves home, Mordecai tells Esther not to reveal that she is a Jew. Esther apparently makes the first cut because when she arrives, she's taken into the harem by the eunuch Haggai. And she makes the next cut too because she's singled out by Haggai as being especially promising material and is given seven women to attend to her. And all eight of them are moved to the best place in the harem. Now, no one ever says this, and I'm reading between the lines here. But I honestly don't think these seven young women are maidservants meant to cater to Esther's every whim. I think these are the seven girls most pleasing to King Xerxes already, and they are meant to teach Esther all about sex and how to please the king. I can't see any other reasonable explanation for their presence and the privacy afforded them. Well, Mordecai paces up and down in front of the women's court every day seeking news of Esther. This goes on for an entire year. Finally, the time comes for Esther to spend the night pleasuring the king. This would normally be a one-night stand. Afterwards, she is to go to the concubine's portion of the harem and will likely never see the king nor any other man again unless the king asks for her by name. It's a night with her life hanging in the balance. The rules are that each virgin can take anything she wishes with her that evening. And when it is Esther's turn, she asks the eunuch Haggai what she should take with her. And she takes whatever it is he suggests. I can't even imagine what that might have been, nor how terrified Esther must be. Nevertheless, Esther has learned her lessons well, and she pleases the king more than any of the other virgins, and so he makes her queen. And Esther finds favor in the eyes of everyone, which surely clues you in that this is a story, not a history, as I cannot imagine any human organization especially a harem where an outsider wins the top spot and is subsequently loved by all. Uh, nope. The virgins are assembled a second time. There's no explanation as to whether this is a second beauty pageant or whether these are the original cohort, nor even why they might be assembled, except to provide a frame for what happens next. You see, while they are assembled, Mordecai is hovering at the door, and while he's there, he overhears two officers plotting the king's assassination. He tells Esther, and Esther reports it to the king immediately, giving Mordecai credit. For those of you already familiar with this story, notice that here, Esther is perfectly capable of getting a complicated message to the king without any royal scepters, or personal danger. This is another hint 
that the narrative is massaged to suit the author's purposes. Well, the plot is thwarted and the two officers are impaled and the whole episode is duly recorded in the annals of the king. At this point, a man named Haman, an Amalekite, is promoted to be second in command to the king. The characterization of Haman as an Amalekite has deep significance. It was the Amalekites who attacked the stragglers, the elderly, the young, and the weak when the Hebrew slaves fled from Egypt back in Exodus 17. The Hebrews were not yet a cohesive nation, and they were at their most vulnerable out there in the wilderness, still within reach of the Egyptians. It was for this attack that the Lord said he would blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. That's in Deuteronomy 25, 19. In fact, the Lord told Moses to write that promise down because it would definitely happen. So right away, everyone listening to this story knows that Haman is the bad guy. Haman is the villain. But there's another even deeper layer here. Haman is an Amalekite for sure. But remember that Mordecai is from the tribe of Benjamin. You see, way back in 1 Samuel 15, we read the story of Israel's first king, King Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. The prophet Samuel came to King Saul and told him the Lord said it was time to utterly wipe out the Amalekites. But when Saul conquered them, he saw the riches of the Amalekites and he saved some plunder and he let the king of the Amalekites live. So the Lord told the prophet Samuel, I am sorry I ever made Saul king over Israel. Just as Saul cast my words aside, so I cast him aside as king. Mordecai is not only of the tribe of Benjamin, but he is a direct descendant of Kish, who was King Saul's father. So this is setting up a showdown between Mordecai, who needs a chance to redeem his ancestral line, and Haman, who in this story represents all the Amalekites. King Xerxes decrees that everyone must kneel and give honor to Haman, but Mordecai will not do it. At first, the king's servants try to get Mordecai to cooperate, but Mordecai tells them that he is a Jew, which presumably explains why he cannot bow down to Haman. The servants report this to Haman, and the next time Haman passes Mordecai, sure enough, he sees that Mordecai is not bowing down to him, and he is enraged. And so Haman plots to kill not only Mordecai, but all the Jews as well. Haman goes to the king and offers him a gigantic bribe to allow Haman to exterminate the Jews throughout the kingdom. But the king gives Haman his signet ring, his literal sign of authority, and tells him to keep the money and do as he wishes. And so Haman sends decrees by courier to every corner of the kingdom, proclaiming that all Jews, young and old, men, women, and children, are to be killed, annihilated, on the 13th day of the month of Adar. Now, that's pretty specific. How did Haman come up with that date? Well, he cast lots. The Hebrew word is purim. It is on this date that the lot fell, which is pretty interesting because elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible, lots are used to determine the will of God. It is as if behind the scenes of the story, the Lord selects this particular day for a reckoning. And somehow, I don't think the reckoning is going to be what Haman thinks it will be. And what is also interesting is that Haman, I call him Haman, Haman, whatever, it's pronounced Haman, sends the orders nearly a year in advance of the chosen date. Adar is the 12th month, but Haman sends the orders on the 13th of Nisan. 
the first month, 11 months in advance. And the day he sends the decree is the day before the Passover begins. So the Jews receive this message during Passover, what to them certainly appears to be their last Passover. And once all this is done, the king and Haman drink it up, while the city of Susa is completely bewildered by the orders they've just received. Orders that 11 months from now, they are to rise up and kill every one of their Jewish neighbors, man, woman, and child. Mordecai, of course, tears his clothes and dons sackcloth and ashes, weeping and wailing bitterly, as are all the Jews throughout the land. When Esther hears of Mordecai's distress, she is very upset and sends one of the eunuchs to give him new clothes and to find out what on earth has happened. Mordecai refuses the clothing and gives the eunuch a copy of Haman's decree and tells him to ask Esther to go before the king to plead for the lives of her people. Esther has been queen about five years at this point, and she has not been called into the presence of the king for a month. She sends a message to Mordecai saying, everyone knows that anyone coming into the presence of the king unbidden is subject to death unless the king extends his scepter. And here we reach the center of the chiasm, the core of the story, the main message. Mordecai responds, do you think that just because you are queen, you will escape the fate of every other Jew? If you remain silent, rescue will come from elsewhere. It's interesting that here would have been the perfect place to use the name of God, wouldn't it? But God's name is not used here. Mordecai continues, if you do not intervene, the Jews will be rescued some other way, but you and your father's house will perish anyway. And who knows, perhaps you have been placed in your royal position for such a time as this. This is by far the most famous passage in the whole book. It is quoted all the time. It speaks to us still today. And it was so cool to find it in the center of the chiasm. We instinctively knew this was the center all along. These, this chiastic structure is very powerful and it does focus us into what's important. And now we start backing out of the chiasm. Each segment, which you'll notice I've marked with a prime. So up at the top, it says I prime. Each segment will mirror the theme of the corresponding segment as we went into the chiasm. This time, instead of Mordecai refusing Esther's help, Esther asks Mordecai for help. She asks him to get all the Jews to fast and pray for her. And instead of refusing to enter the king's presence unbidden lest she die, Esther agrees to enter the king's presence saying, if I perish, I perish. See how the chiasm works? The rest of the story will mirror the first half of the story in the same sort of way, but the second half will have kind of a little twist. The theme will be the, the same but for each segment, but there'll be a little twist to it. Mordecai readily agrees. He and the Jews fast and pray for Esther, but this time they're not wearing sackcloth and ashes in mourning but are fasting and praying with hope for her success. And so three days later, Esther enters the throne room of the king. The king notices her and extends his scepter and Esther touches the top of it. This is one of many places in this book where the sexual overtones are hard to miss. And the king asks her for her request, promising to give her up to half the kingdom. But Esther does not tell him. Instead, she invites the king and Haman to a private banquet she has prepared. And as they are eating and drinking, 
the king asks Esther again what her request is, again, promising her up to half his kingdom. But Esther does not answer. Instead, she invites the king and Haman to another banquet tomorrow. Well, as Haman leaves the banquet, he's walking on cloud nine. He's been dining in private with the king and the queen. But then he sees that Mordecai is still not bowing down to him. And that makes him so angry that he can't even enjoy his big moment. Haman goes home and tells his wife and friends everything that has happened. And when they see how upset he is over Mordecai, they suggest that Haman make a huge 60-foot-tall pole in his yard to impale Mordecai on. Well, that makes Haman feel much better, and he orders it done. That night, the king can't sleep. And he figures the surest way to fall asleep is to have the history of his reign read to him from the archives. And as he is listening, they read him the story of how Mordecai thwarted the assassination plot and saved the king's own life. And King Xerxes says, wait, did we ever give Mordecai a reward for this? And come to find out, that had totally slipped everyone's mind. So it's daybreak by now, and Haman happens to be out in the king's court, getting ready to tell him about that huge 60-foot-tall stake he's going to impale Mordecai on. But instead, the king calls Haman in and asks his opinion. He asks, Haman, what should be done for someone the king wishes to honor? Haman reminds me of that song, you're so vain, you probably think the song is about you. Haman figures he's the one the king wants to honor. So he really pours it on. He says, oh, dress him in clothes the king himself has worn. Place him on a horse the king has ridden and set a royal crown on his head. Then Lead him through the city with a nobleman proclaiming, this is what is done when the king wishes to honor a man. The king thinks this is a brilliant idea, and he orders Haman himself to do exactly this for Mordecai the Jew. (laughs) Oh, to be a fly on the wall and see Haman's face. (laughs) And so Haman himself crowns Mordecai and leads him on the king's own horse, proclaiming his honor throughout the streets of Susa. When Haman finally crawls home, utterly mortified, his wife and friends hear the story with horror. They realize there can be no explanation for this turn of events except that Mordecai is somehow being miraculously protected and that he will ultimately destroy Haman. As they are saying this to Haman, the king's eunuchs arrive to take Haman to the private banquet with the king and the queen. At the banquet, the king again asks Esther for her request and promises to give her up to half the kingdom. By this time, he's surely figured out that her ask is going to be a big one. And sure enough, Esther asks for her life and the life of her people, the Jews. For she says, we have been sold to be killed, annihilated. I would have stayed quiet, O king, if we were only to be made slaves, because that would not be worth bothering the king for. The king is enraged and asks, who on earth ordered such a thing? And Esther cries, the wicked Haman. 
The king is so angry, he immediately rushes out of the room to order Haman's execution. Haman jumps up in terror. He falls on the couch where Esther is reclining for the meal and begs her for his life. And at that very moment, the king returns and shouts, now you are molesting my queen in my own house? And you know, Haman has made bitter enemies along the way. Because right at that moment, one of the eunuchs pipes up and says, there's actually a stake right outside Haman's house that he was planning to impale Mordecai on. And the king orders, impale Haman on it. And so it is done. And on that very day, King Xerxes gives Queen Esther all the wealth of the house of Haman. The king removes his signet ring from Haman and gives it to Mordecai. But there's still one problem. The decree Haman sent to kill all the Jews on the 13th of Adar. It cannot be rescinded. So the king tells Mordecai, you've got my signet ring. Send whatever orders you wish. And so orders are sent that the king has granted the Jews the right to assemble and defend themselves and utterly wipe out any who dare to attack them. Well, that definitely does the trick. People are so scared of the Jews, they start pretending to be Jews themselves. When the 13th of Adar comes, the Jews are armed and ready and are able to put down any who dare come against them. The fighting is fierce, so Esther comes before the king again. But this time, there's no mention of a scepter. She is simply present beside the king. And the king asks what her request is. And she asks for yet one more day to complete the annihilation of the enemies of the Jews in Susa, including Haman's 10 sons. And so the defense of the Jews in Susa is completed on the second day of fighting. And the Amalekites are finally wiped out. And on the next day, the Jews rest and rejoice. And that is why the Feast of Purim, meeting Feast of Lots, is observed on two different days. The 15th of Adar for Jews living in Susa and the 14th of Adar for all other Jews. What a story. In our breakout groups, we'll think about why this story is in the Bible. And we'll look at the chiasm to see what other insights it might give us. So tell me what what y'all came up with here. What'd you talk about? (laughs) We never even got to the part about our own contribution in life. We, but we really delved into, you know, what we've been taught about story and that Esther was this and look, we have a little bit of a paradigm shift here and um, that, and then who was Mordecai to Esther? But what about this? He's not a prophet. And then I look it up. Well, the Jewish people say, so yeah, we just delved into a lot of. Yeah, we have more questions than we had yeah. answers. Our, our, oh, our group well, had a lot good. of questions. We can start there. Tell, tell me some of your questions. Okay. Some of, one of our questions was, where exactly is this story set? Um, uh, I mean, Xerxes apparently ruled over a large area, but we couldn't figure out exactly where this was set. So that's one I'm question. I'm sorry. Yes. Um, the, the Xerxes is the um, ruler of the entire Persian empire, which used to, we're used to having its capital in Babylon, but the kings can choose where they want to have their, their seat. And so Susa, which is east of Babylon, is a major city and it's where he chose to have his seat. So he's still, this is still Persia, just like okay, Darius. So bottom line is this took place in Persia. Okay. Yep. So okay. he had no influence over Jerusalem. Oh, yeah. I'm, oh, yeah. Uh, all of all, Jerusalem and all the way down to Egypt is part of his kingdom. And he has governors over Jerusalem. Oh. And that's why last week, 30 years ago, that um, they had to have permission to, you know, rebuild the temple and all that stuff. They had to have permission from the Persian emperor to do that. That was that that was a key part of our key reason for uh, Woody's question. Keep going, Woody. Okay, so 
two more questions that we had. One, one of your questions, why is it a story like this in the Bible? Uh, but then we also asked, when was it included in the Bible? And to include it in the Bible. And, and my internet is kind of breaking up. So I'm hearing about every other word. But what I did hear is, is uh, three, two, I heard two of your three questions. One was, why is a story like this in the Bible, which is kind of what we're talking about here. It, you can think of it like a parable. I think of it as a parable. Okay, it's, it's trying to tell me something. And when it was included in the Bible, well, that's a, that's a tricky question because it depends on who you ask. And um, at this point in time, it was very late. And it, although it's written um, in, I think it's in Hebrew and not Aramaic. I'm pretty sure it's in Hebrew. And it's definitely in Hebrew. I remember that it's Hebrew because the Hebrew is a little clunky. And I was thinking, you know, maybe the writer, this is when, when Aramaic has become the uh, lingua franca and perhaps Hebrew is a second language for the writer. So this is, you know, later on. Um, and uh, when, so when the story uh, becomes a story uh, is usually, I think, earlier than when the story is actually written down. Um, and, and during the, it's in part of what's called the writings section of the Hebrew Bible. And those are all later in the period. So they're sometime after the return of the exiles and before um, the turn of the millennium. You know, you, you touched on something there that made me, um, when I read the intro on your, on your email about, you know, this week's lesson, you know, a romance and a villain and a, right. And then through your lens, we've learned about how to discern um, when God or Jesus are in the story and speaking and when it's just a story. Um, so with that lens today, listening to you and then looking at this, I was like, this completely reminds me of when I used to teach the folklore session, that this is all folklore basically is whether it's a myth, a legend, a fairy tale, the story around it has a central message in the middle you're supposed to walk away with. And ta-da, you know, so having set that up, I viewed the chiasm, baby. Um, I viewed it completely today. And I know, um, I think it was Erica was saying the same thing about how we were taught this story. And yeah, I didn't fit that narrative today. That center of the chiasm is so interesting, though, because it says, if you remain silent, rescue will come from elsewhere. Or presumably the elsewhere is from God. Exactly. But why didn't they just say that? Well, we were talking about in our group, Gail had said earlier about whoever wrote this wasn't necessarily Jewish. And it might have been that they thought that their implication was enough. Or maybe, you know, this about the if you do not intervene, the Jews will be rescued some other way, and that Mordecai's talking and all that. That could be prophecy. It certainly it sounded was, like prophecy, didn't it? It's kind of like Esther, if you don't if you don't stand up, we're gonna get rescued, but you're not. I said that it I was shocked because I've always been this of to kind of glorify the power and the strength of Esther. And I guess I just never paid attention to the sentence before. But to me, when I read it today, it was like, wait a minute, like did something cool, but it was almost like an ultimatum. Like, if you don't do this, you're the one that's going to be suffering. So of course she's got to do something about it. So it it almost took um, Esther's strength and power almost down to like anybody would do it if you're only given those two options. And I think that that's a major important point here is that Esther was standing in her power as queen and Mordecai was standing in the Lord's power. Mordecai was saying, we are the Lord's people. The Lord has this. The Lord is going to 
take care of this one way or another. And Esther has, he's holding up a mirror to her, kind of like you say, you know, and saying, wait a minute, you have forgotten your roots. You have forgotten that you are rooted in Yahweh. And then is when Esther is empowered to say, I will do what I have probably been placed here to do, even if I personally perish. That needs to be our core heart directive. That we are here to be rooted in God. And whether we perish or not is not the point. Trusting God is the point. Why was that perish piece, in your opinion, added then? Because it does seem a little bit like you do this or you die and your family line is blotted out. So it, again, mm-hmm. it, didn't, it didn't necessarily seem like do this because you have this deep love and commitment. It was like you either do this or somebody else steps up and you're, you're going to die and your whole family line is going to die, which one of, I think, I don't know if it was Julia or Shirley that was talking about how it was a really an important piece for your family line to continue. You know, so I don't know that that parish piece, I'm, yes, that I I agree with standing in the Lord's power. And yet there was also kind of this threat of, but if you don't, which is, which hits, it triggers me, obviously, because that was kind of some of how we're raised of like, you either do this or here's the consequence. Ah, I see. Mm -hmm. It it sounds like she does like self-sacrifice. Well, okay. I may die, but yeah, you're right. I got to do this. So maybe she dies for the family. That's those are the, all the ramification kind of stuff that we talked about. Just a completely different paradigm shift on the story of, you know, badass Esther that we grew up hearing. Right. But I do think that speaking to your question, Ellen, um, about about the trigger, this is also important. And I want to highlight this, that that people in the church are often told, if you don't do things my way and how I see God, you will perish. And that is what not that is not what this story is doing. So if you look at your um, uh, study guide at the. I line, you'll see that in the story, Mordecai refuses Esther's help when she sends him clothes and stuff. And Esther refuses to enter the king's presence unbidden for it will mean certain death. In order for this to be a chiasm, the other side has to follow that same pattern. So in part, this is a literary device, Ellen, in part, that's in there because she has to, there has to be an ask for help. She needs to agree to enter the presence unbidden. And in response to the certain death, she has to take her own agency and say, I'm doing this for my own decision, not for yours, Mordecai. I'm doing this because I remember who I am. And if I perish, I perish. But I see this, I perish, I perish as her taking her own agency. Yeah, that makes sense. The first queen did. Mm-hmm. And well, that may not be a, Go ahead. Um, even how you described it, it almost takes, <clears throat> it almost puts Esther in the category of all the other kings that we've learned about where they've lacked humility. And so if Mordecai is the one that shows the mirror to her face, I find it very interesting that all this time we miss that part of Esther, miss the part that she had to be humble before she could say, okay, I remember who God is and I am doing this for God. Whereas Mordecai should begin the credit for the book, not Esther. You know, I don't know. I, I guess I've always, I've completely missed a lot of things that have happened here. Yeah, and if you combine that with the whole tribe of Benjamin versus the Amalekites and Mordecai being the one to come up with the edict that goes out later, I mean, and Mordecai in the assassination plot, thwarting the assassination plot, really the hero of this story is Mordecai, folks, and it always has been. Now, one of the things I didn't catch even in our group until we were talking about it here 
about this. Um, if you do not intervene, the Jews will be some other way and your father's house will perish anyway. Something Joe looked up while we were in our group was um, a resource that was Hebrew in nature. And it said that Mordecai was her adopted father. I'm wondering if she offered to help him personally, but then if he was her adopted father, it would hold that he would be wiped out too. So one of the, the, the question that you asked is, why a story like this? Um, why was it included? And um, one thing, one reason we asked about whether or not Xerxes' influence went all the way to Jerusalem was, Without this story, despite what Mordecai says at the end, the Jews risked being totally annihilated. And so it's a piece of salvation history that, um, that Jesus would not have um, existed if not for this story. Amen. Okay, that may that that answered our last question. That just made me just made me think of um to the question of why is a story why is a story like this in the Bible? It seems to me like the X, the center of the of the uh, that Mordecai was basically saying to her, "Don't forget, you are a Jew." Yes. You may be the queen, but don't forget you're a Jew yeah. and you have responsibilities to your your people. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Did you all look um at at the chiasm and how it was flipped and and think about um what was being said in those flips, the contrast is important. So for example, for example, I'll give you an example, and then we'll kind of work our way up through the top and to, to the extent we have time. But if you start at the bottom at the at the at center of the X where with bottom of that chart, where Mordecai says what he does, what is being said is that God's hand is in your life. Don't think that you are in the place you are because you are better somehow. Okay. And then if we move up to the next one that we just finished talking about, row I, and we look at what happened on the left and what happened on the right, you know, in the, in the first instance, Esther refuses, it will mean certain death. Esther um, agrees. And if I perish, I perish. And you all picked out the important theme there is humility. You know, that's what changed that humility, self-sacrifice. That is what is being different because of having turned around. So if we go up to the next one, What's the difference on row H where the Mordecai and the Jews in both places, one they put on sackcloth and ashes, the other they fast and pray. What is the big difference? Oh, hope, hope, not despair. We have hope, not despair because of God. Go up to the next one. Haman goes in with an enormous bribe. Esther goes in with nothing and the king promises her, Half his kingdom. She goes in with humility, right? She doesn't want to approach him. She's she she waits a couple times before she, you know, was that because she's trying to get the king to anticipate? Was that because does she need another feast because she's got to summon up her courage? Either one, you know, oh. she doesn't ask anything for herself specifically, mm-hmm. and she doesn't. Like you said, she doesn't offer the bride. She doesn't have anything to offer. That's right. And what? And so, what is the difference between um, going in with an enormous? What is the difference in the responses? What is the difference in going in with an, an enormous bribe and and going in with nothing? 
Who has the abundance? You're not going to be disappointed if you don't have those high expectations. Say that again. I couldn't hear it. You're not going to be disappointed if you don't have those high expectations. Well, yeah, but... But it's also arrogant. Yeah. It's also a difference between who you're, who has the power. In the first, the king has the power and money is the leverage. In the second, Esther has nothing but the Lord. And the king's heart is turned towards her with generosity. So this is, you know, it is a complete trusting kind of thing. She did not know if this would be the result, you know, when she started all this. So go up to the next one, the next one on row F. Haman plots against Mordecai and all the Jews in the first going into the chiasm, but coming out, Haman plots against Mordecai personally. What does that what does that say? Oh, Haman was jealous. Haman was and jealous. He, he was willing to to eliminate millions what, of people. What does it say about God? That he doesn't hold it against everyone. He just holds it against one the person that's responsible. Well, exactly. So Haman is is focusing in on the individual. So the scope, the perspective has come from global all Jews down to one person. And God is working and God sees the individual. The individual is not expendable to God. Okay. The focus has been drawn in. We, the individual's, matter so we'll move up to e haman is honored by the king going in mordecai is honored by the king coming out what does that say about god and these are not well, trick questions <laughs> no but haman basically the false idol forsaking god and mordecai is rooted in that and that's where god wants us to be that's it's exactly and it's linked to that one just before where mordecai was in personal danger right and right. things were focused on him and and i and we just finished deciding that god has him in view as an individual and this very next part god has worked for good for the individual Okay. It's about, it's about both. It's about us as individuals and it's and God working through and in us and around us. But it's also about how us standing in that trust, in that relationship with God, has rippling implications to all of our people and to all of the world. So if we move um somebody said something. Um, what do you has doesn't, doesn't it also show that just because you're a bad person that you don't sometimes get good stuff. You know, there's a lot of bad people that have power and wealth and stuff. And people look at them and go, why do they have good stuff? Because they're bad people. But on the other hand, God gives just as much to somebody that is a good person. I mean, it it makes, makes that more just because you're a bad person doesn't mean you're going to have nothing. And just because you're a good person doesn't mean you're going to have everything. You can't tell from the outside looking in. And that goes back to row G where Haman had all this money that he could just throw around to, you know, Mm -hmm. bribe people to do what he, to manipulate people to do what he wanted. And yet the power resided in the Lord. The power Mm -hmm. resides in the people who have nothing on the surface. And even if we have money, 
we need to know that's not where the power resides. Even if we have position like Esther did, we have to know that's not where the power resides. So if we go up to D, uh, um, we, we understand that, and Haman certainly understands that uh, we understand that God has worked for good for Mordecai, all right? Mordecai has trusted him. God has worked for good for him. And if we go up yet again to see, go one more level up. Esther is honored and hides that she, she is a Jew in the first half. In the second half, Esther is honored and reveals that she is a Jew. What is that saying to us or, or about God? To do with being honest uh, and transparent and true to who you are, who you come And then when you're authentic, that authenticity matters is how I say it. Absolutely. Personal integrity. But I also see that, but I said that it was honored even when she, I see it as a gentle God was with us in our every step. When we can't be authentic, when we have to hide like that, he was there with her. Which she makes perfect sense. Absolutely perfect sense that she hid until until she couldn't anymore which i think speaks to a lot of what we see for folks in a situation no longer comes in yeah she rose to be exactly who she was supposed to be in that moment What happened here? Did everybody else get a good um, Sorry, I got kicked off. My internet is up and down. Um, so I missed completely. Okay, well, she's, Julia wrapping up with it, you know, if she had, go ahead and say it again. Did you get Julia's, she had hidden? That the rest of the story wouldn't have happened because the edict wouldn't have gone out against the queen's people. So it doesn't make sense that so her keeping her ancestry to herself until it time when push came to shove and she had to reveal it. Yes. And I said, but that but that puts her exactly like they say that she was the person she needed to be exactly in that moment. Right. And it may have been, and it was constructed to us being the same. Right. 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 I think the point about personal integrity is, is what we need to know. And I also think that, uh, bye Shirley. And I also think that it is also, um, a, a fact that the author needed to mirror these two parts of the chiasm. So, you know, the author is manipulating this story um, as well. So we're, we're trying to look underneath that to what we can pull out of it. Kind of the, why is this in the Bible question? And so that takes us to B where Vashti exercised her agency and got destroyed by her enemies. Whereas Esther exercised her agency and destroys her enemies. Mm. What is that saying to us? You're going to need to help us. (laughs) That that was a struggle for me because I don't see that she destroyed. I see her more that she saved. Yeah, well, she certainly, what she ended up doing was fulfilling the word of the Lord, the command of the Lord from all those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, that those Amalekites were going to be wiped off the face of the earth because they very nearly wiped out the Hebrews before they ever had a chance to happen, you know? Right, 
Those are the ones I have a hard time making peace with though, right? Yeah, so she stands up against being sexually abused essentially, right? right. Obviously there's the story and thus she is destroyed by her enemies. Whereas the piece we were kind of joking, you know, that we didn't get on our flannel graph in Sunday school was that Esther was being groomed to be yeah. in a harem. Absolutely. Right? We just talked about, man, she's so and so it's like, obviously that piece of the story was skipped while we learned it. And it's, it's fascinating to me. And I don't quite know how to make peace with the fact that one stood up for her body, her rights, her, um, you know, to protected herself. And the other was encouraged to, for an extended period of time, be groomed for this position that most conservative Christians would say is sinful and not right and not the order that God has designed. And yet we're idolizing, not idolizing her, but we're holding her, her certainly. Yes. Right. Which, which I, I see the point too, right? I, I, I'm not knocking, knocking Esther in that she obviously went through a lot too, but just it's hard to sit with. That was definitely not one man, one woman. Mm-mm. Well, so I think we see this played out today um and i'm not uh i'm going to be willing to say that where we have seen ulterior motives or explicit motives by a patriarchal system that that could have been in play when this book was chosen that um, here, we're going to show you a woman who has great influence, but oh, by the way, only because she submitted. See how that gets used over and over and over oh. again throughout. And still today, um, in churches that allow and celebrate a patriarchal uh, power structure. Yes. That's all said, Martha. Yes. And so we, and we definitely need to be aware of these cultural overtones, which unfortunately carry over as you point out even nowadays but in this story in this culture this would have all been a-okay there was no question that it would be a-okay for her to be groomed to be part of the harem you know and in this culture it would have been a very bad thing for a woman to stand up and not do what her husband had told her to do right um it's it's we have to come back to um, looking at the story through the eyes of the author in order to understand what they're trying to tell us um, and not get hung up in, in the culture, even though, and, but, but also as Martha points out to also call it out because it gets misused because that was ancient culture. That was not like how everything was supposed to be, <laughs> you know, in the world. And so in this part in B, Esther exercises her agency, overcomes her enemies. And I kind of think that's the, we're getting near the culmination. Well, that is the culmination of Mordecai telling her in the center of the chiasm, you have been put here for this purpose. Take action. Take action, whether it means you will be destroyed or take action, whether it means God will save you. God put right. you here, take action. Right. All right. And the very end, A, the, it, the starts with the splendor of King Xerxes and a f- drunken orgy feast for all the people, you know, for six months and then a, a full week's banquet on the beginning of the chiasm. But at the end of the chiasm is the splendor of Mordecai and Esther and a feast for all the Jews that they still celebrate today. Um, every year they celebrate Purim. We did. It was not long ago that that we uh, had Purim. In fact, and I think right. that that is the bow 
on the story. Scott is all about the banquets. There are banquets everywhere where God is. I think that's just the happily ever after, because that will be our happily ever after. If you've read ahead, spoiler. Yeah. Alert. <laughs> and that's what I have on the story of Esther. I hope it gave you a, a new way of thinking about it. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. Wow. 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 So to wrap it up, this isn't, this is a story. Yes. This isn't like, like what's it happened. A, was Esther a historical? Oh, queen? I have no idea what actually happened historically. I don't know. We don't know. It looks suspiciously like a story to me <laughs> for all the reasons mm-hmm. I've explained, but it's a story with a reason. It's a story with a purpose. Yeah. And, and, and I believe, do believe it belongs in the canon. Yeah. Question we had the, our last little question we had is Esther or Mordecai related to, like an ancestor of Jesus? No, uh, Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Benjamin. Okay. That's what I thought. That's what we thought. But we, we, you know, it was like, okay. Cause we were trying to figure out because most all the books of the Bible, the reason why they're there is because they point to Jesus in the old Testament. Mm-hmm. At least that's what I was taught. <laughs> so I was wondering why did they, you know, if it, didn't what was going on <laughs> actually i think most of the books in the hebrew bible are there because they tell the story of the jews okay um jesus is definitely pointed to in the prophecies uh god's hand you, we will see many many things pull forward from the hebrew bible into the old test into the new testament um but those books were chosen for the Hebrew Bible because they meant something to the Hebrew people. So let's end it there. And we're not done with chiasms. We will. You all have a wonderful Holy Week. such a little chiasm nerd over there, Joe. And a happy Easter. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Bye. Happy Easter, everybody. Happy Easter. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.